Hi, this is Glenn Lowry, The Glenn Show. You can find us at Substack, uh, at YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm with Rajiv Sati. Uh, Rajiv is professor of economics at Barnard College at Columbia University in New York City. He's an old, old friend. He's been a guest here at The Glenn Show uh, often in the past, although it's been a while uh, since we talked. Um, and uh, I'm just happy to be welcoming my fellow economist and uh, world traveler. We taught together in Bogota and Colombia. We've authored papers published in refereed journals together about economic uh, matters. And uh, we've uh, shared a lively intellectual friendship over uh, many years. Welcome him back uh, to this conversation. Welcome, Rajiv. Oh, thank you for having me back, Glenn. It's been a while. So, yeah, it has been. And you've been uh, busy as ever. And I often uh, learn about economic issues from talking to you because <clears throat> uh, I've gotten so occupied with the culture war, race conflict, debates about affirmative action and critical race theory that I sometimes lose my way. I don't know what's happening in the market right now. I suspect that you probably have some ideas about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, one thing at a time. <laughs> what's happening in the market right now? Do you have any ideas about it? <laughs> I mean, it's all about inflation right now, Glenn. It's, uh, the question is whether there's going to be a soft landing or a hard landing. And, and you know, uh, the market seems to be uh, uh, responding to that. So it just really depends on whether the Fed can... Uh, you know, um, avoid what happened in the early 1980s, you know, 79. Yeah, with Volcker. Where there was a very, very serious, yeah, with Volcker, where there was really a very, very serious, a deep recession. In fact, we didn't get those levels of unemployment till uh, the pandemic hit. Um, so, um, so the hope is that it's not going to go to... But the market seems to be pessimistic about the prospects of a soft landing. Well, that's... That's that's part of it, but there's also a huge crash in in cryptocurrency prices, in you know NFTs, Bitcoin, uh, Ether, and you know the entire sort of space, um, including assets that were marketed as being convertible to US dollars uh, on on parity, have collapsed, and uh, you know several billion dollars uh, of notional wealth has disappeared, and that's having spillover effects in the tech sector, and then again in um, in the broader market. So. So there's something very interesting going on. There's a huge loss of wealth, of notional wealth. And you might say, well, it didn't exist in the first place. But people were making plans and decisions and expenditure uh, choices based on their balance sheets. And those balance sheets have completely been transformed and partly well, by crypto. I can attest to the truth of that as a man in his 70s with a lifetime worth of accumulated uh, retirement savings, uh, pretty much all of it invested in the market. Yeah, uh, I do check in <laughs> on my yeah. portfolio on a regular basis. And when the number goes from whatever to something significantly less, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel as wealthy. Uh, there was a labor economist named George Johnson back in the 70s when I was teaching at the University of Michigan. He called it the piggy effect. Oh, don't you get that? No, the piggy the, oh. the, the AC piggy effect was to bring into the Keynesian analysis the effect on aggregate demand of revaluations of wealth oh, in people's portfolio. That was Pigou's idea. Yes. Actually, actually, you know, there's a related idea that's absolutely brilliant. I think your viewers may be interested. It's in John Kenneth Galbraith's uh, History of the Great Crash. In fact, the book is called The Great Crash. And he introduced this idea called the bezel. Have you, uh, have you heard of it? Are you familiar with this idea of the bezel? No, only because you've told me before and I've already forgotten. Okay, so very briefly... Um, he talked about uh, 
the level of embezzlement that was going on in the 1920s um, and basically pointed out that, you know, whenever there's embezzlement, there's a period of time before it's discovered. And during that period, both the person who has stolen the money and the person whose money has been stolen believe that they own the exact same wealth. So there are two claims to the same wealth and they can only be one in the end. Uh, but for that period of time, people are making spending plans based on wealth that only one of them can ultimately possess. And, uh -oh. and, and, and a unit of embezzlement that has not been discovered yet is a bezel. Is a bezel. <laughs> and, and, if you, and, and actually, I find it useful to think about uh, the crypto um, uh, price variations in these terms. Uh, you know, if, it, if it's notional wealth that, that can't be sustained, uh, at least not at the levels uh, uh, that have been attained, you're talking about you know, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars that just appear overnight and then disappear. Um, it's, uh, there's something similar going on. I mean, uh, so I, I would reckon that the implication there is during this intermediate period, uh, when both the asset holder, the legitimate asset holder and the embezzler believe they have this wealth, demand will be inflated by that effect. And yes. when, the, when the unraveling occurs, as it inevitably must, there will be a, a, a crash in demand accompanying that unraveling. Exactly. So this whole the, thing contributes to instability. Exactly. And the, the, the longer the period over which embezzlement occurs or over which, you know, um, a bubble uh, uh, in crypto stocks occurs, the, the deeper the crash subsequently when it arrives and the bigger the aggregate demand effect. So you get a big boom over a period of time, but it's not sustainable. And so you get a big crash following it. So this is Goldbrett's interpretation of what happened to some degree in the 1920s and 30s. I wonder how that's different from a bubble in tulips or some other uh, asset that where the expectations of future price rises fuel current price rises for a period until it becomes unsustainable. And in that period, people think they have money that in the steady state they definitely right. are not going to have. Right. It's, uh, um, it's similar, except that with embezzlement, there's a sort of a, a, the force of an accounting identity. Uh, you know, ultimately, you know, it's not mathematically possible for both individuals to have claims to that same asset. Whereas with, uh, with other assets, you know, who knows? I mean, uh, yeah. it could be that price is not just uh, sustainable, but actually the asset is undervalued. I mean, we don't know. Uh, um, so so th there's that difference. But, but there's, you know, the idea is the same. Yeah. You have a, a newsletter, a blog that you've been publishing for years now where you comment on economic and policy-related matters from your uh, perspective as an a, a information economist. What do you call it? In, imperfect information? Or something? Yeah, yeah, it's the Substack. It's, it's, it's free because I sometimes don't post for you know, several months, so I can't charge people for it. But, and so you know, it's completely free for people to sign up. But what I did, I, you know, I've been blogging for about, I don't know, 20 years or so. Uh, and I just transferred everything over to Substack because you can do it in, in a matter of minutes. Yeah. So my entire archive going back to, I don't know, 2002 or something like that. I think the very first post I wrote, actually, Glenn, was about your book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, the first edition when it first came out. I think that was what... Oh, everyone should go and look that up. <laughs> that What's your Substack called? Um, it's just called Imperf uh, Imperfect Information. That's, uh -huh. that's you, you, you said it. Um, and, uh, and so it has everything going back, you know, the, the entire archive. And unless Substack kicks me off, because they're not making money from me, <laughs> uh, you know, since I'm not charging anybody for access to it. So, um, you know, I'm assuming the company will remain solvent and let me stay on the platform, even if I'm, uh, I'm not making the money, but we'll see.
Well, you, you, you will ebb and you will flow. There will be times when you have more things to say. Right. And certainly this public service of uh, a platform for a voice like yours uh, is fair uh, payment by Substack for the privilege of uh, being able to make all the money they're making off of whoever well, else, yeah, <laughs> including your humble servant here. <laughs> I hope to see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, I can remember reading uh, about uh, many interesting commentaries on economics in your, in your newsletter. Someone would die a, a great, uh, mind would pass away and, and yeah. you would review or, you know, something interesting would develop as a set of policy arguments and uh, you would have, you'd have something to say. You weighed in on the Roland Fryer controversy, as I can recall I about even, his, even, yeah, yes. go ahead. Sorry, Glenn, I didn't mean to interrupt, but <laughs> even before Roland's uh, paper um, got a lot of publicity in the New York Times, about a year earlier, Sendel Mulanathan had, had uh, written something there. Um, uh, with which I took issue, um, you know, I, I just thought that the conclusions didn't follow from the reasoning. This, and by so, the way, yeah. I, I, I want the reader, the listener to know is on the question of whether police violence against African-Americans reflected racial discrimination in the treatment of people and what was the uh, evidence for and against that proposition. Uh, so you, you were skeptical of some people's skepticism about the claim yeah. that the police were racist. Yeah, so in a nutshell, you know, Sandil had written this uh, um, uh, article in 2015, uh, basically saying, look, you know, um, the, you know, if you compare the likelihood of being arrested um, versus the likelihood of being killed, being, being exposed to lethal force by police, they're roughly comparable, about 30% each for African-Americans in the United States. And uh, from this, he concluded that, um, that, you know, while there may be bias in the initiation of contact, um, the evidence uh, for bias in, um, uh, you know, in, in the exercise of lethal force conditional on a contact, once a contact had been initiated, was limited. In fact, he argued uh, quite explicitly that, uh, that he didn't think there was bias in you know, lethal force once the contact had been uh, initiated. And this is what Dan and I in our book uh, called uh, the contact hypothesis, that basically the likelihood that a contact will you know, develop into a deadly force incident is not that different uh, um, you know, by, by a race of civilian. So, so this was the argument he made. And, and the problem with this argument, or at least the problem that I felt existed with this argument, um, was that the qualitative nature of contacts was different. So, so basically, um, if it were the case that there were bias in the initiation of contacts, and you know, I, I mentioned a few examples, or Dan and I mentioned a few examples in our book, for example, the Gates arrest or, or, or the arrest of Sandra Bland or um, the Philadelphia Starbucks ar ar arrests. I think it was uh, Rashawn Nelson and Dante Washington. If these arrests, I mean, just uh, uh, suppose it were true that these arrests would not have occurred had those civilians been white, then the arrest pool is inflated in a way that makes it larger, uh, uh, but not only larger, but systematically less dangerous for police because these folks are not a danger to police. And So this and is so a theoretical observation that you don't actually have any evidence uh, relevant to the question of whether contact uh, behavior police is different by race. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's anecdotal evidence. It's evidence, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not statistical. Well, Sandra Bland and company are, are just cases. They, they don't constitute any systematic survey of the, of the interaction between police and, 
and citizens. Sure. No, that is that is correct, uh, Glenn. But even Roland's paper, which you mentioned uh, a, a while ago, um, cites evidence, both new evidence and surveys, old evidence that there are biases um, in non-lethal force. So, you know. That's force, not contact. I was making a very specific point about uh, your rebuttal of, of, of Sindel. And it's just saying that he doesn't know whether or not the contact process is racially biased. And if it is, as yeah. some of these anecdotes may suggest to us it is, yeah. then his conclusion is not, is not valid. Correct. My, my response to Sendel was a theoretical um, argument, basically pointing out that there's an implicit premise in his reasoning. Yeah. That ought to be made explicit and investigated. That, that's and the that premise is also present in Roland's Houston study, as James yeah. Heckman and uh, Steve uh, Derloff have pointed Derloff. out in, in one of their commentaries. Exactly. I should just mention, your book is called Shadows of Doubt, Stereotypes, Crime, and the Pursuit of Justice, published in 2019 by Harvard University Press. Yes. And it's a major contribution uh, to the literature on applying um, uh, social analysis, economic analysis, information, theoretic insight to the uh, grappling with the problem of crime and punishment in, uh, in American cities. I think everyone should be aware of this important book. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. You, you have a blurb on it, and so you've read it uh, cover to cover, and uh, yes, I appreciate it. Uh, and have caught it and have watched students' eyes open when <laughs> I, I put things before them, like this beautiful uh, uh, burglar paradox of Thomas Schelling's that uh, you draw on, uh, strategic analysis of the encounters between people who might be armed and capable of inflicting uh, uh, bodily harm upon one another when, you know, uh, the... the Insights deriving therefrom may help to explain some of the outsized racial differences in the frequency of, uh, of violent uh, uh, offenses that are being committed within uh, black and, and non-black communities. Do, I, yeah. do, do you agree? Yes, Glenn, that's, that's right. It, it offers a non-essentialist account of what yeah. we see in the data. That was my goal with, with Dan in this book, because um, a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of people point out to these statistics with regard to homicide, with regard to robbery and, and so on, um, and have an essentialist picture in mind. And, and, you know, you and I are economists, Glenn, so, we, you know, we tend to look at incentives and uh, start with the position, uh, you know, what you called an axiom of uh, anti-essentialism in your, in your Du Bois lectures, uh, and ask, you know, you know, were the incentives uh, different? Would people act differently? You know, can one... Think about the incentives people are facing, including strategic incentives, which you just alluded to, um, uh, and explain what one sees in the data. And actually, um, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, but just last week I was on um, Barry Weiss's podcast with David French uh, discussing, um, discussing gun violence. Uh, and uh, really, um, if, you, if you'd like, we can get into uh, this issue too, but it's very much related um, to the analysis of homicide in our paper, because if you have, uh, you know, if you have these kind of encounters and people are armed, especially if, you know, a lot of guns are flowing into the neighborhood, trafficked guns, straw purchased guns, lost and stolen guns, uh, then, um, then you're going to end up with very high rates of homicide. And some of the policies that are proposed, like, for example, um, banning high capacity magazines or the long guns, you know, the so-called assault weapons, um, uh, having background checks and red flag logs will not do much for these uh, for these rates of homicide. And in fact, I just uh, I'll stop talking in a second. But I just want to remind you of a 
point you made in a recent conversation with John McWhorter, where you said actually that um, uh, the mass shootings uh, like Uvalde and, and uh, Buffalo and others that we've seen recently, they rightly attract a lot of public attention. They, they, they animate uh, our politicians for a while. There may well be an agreement uh, now on gun reform, but they are a very small proportion of total homicides. You know, you have about 500 people who are killed as a result of mass shootings in the U.S. annually, and about 19,000 uh, uh, who are killed overall. So you're talking about 3% or so. Um, and I, I think it's, uh, so I compare it in, in a post I wrote recently on the substack you mentioned um, to air, uh, airplane crashes versus automobile accidents, so traffic deaths. Uh, you know, the airplane crashes are, you know, much more salient, they attract a lot of attention, but they are responsible for far fewer transportation deaths. But we should, we should use the conversation that's been started as a result of Uvalde and Buffalo uh, to, to address homicide more generally and more broadly, because if we don't, it's a missed opportunity. And, uh, and uh, you know, you and I both, uh, you know, care deeply about this issue, and we don't want this conversation to be focused on, on um, only on the kinds of policies that will, that will operate. A cynic, yeah, no, no, a cynic in me might say that, yeah, your analogy is interesting. Most tra transportation-related deaths are from automobile crashes. Very few, relatively speaking, are from airline crashes. And yet the day-in, day-out carnage of death on the roadways goes almost unremarked. Yeah. And if a plane goes down somewhere, it will have the nation's attention for days. Yeah. Uh, I was going to observe... There's an additional twist uh, when we talk about uh, deaths from gun violence, which is that there's a racial difference in the uh, frequency with which the homicides that are not mass shootings happen. Those are half of those or more are black perpetrators and victims <clears throat> uh, relative to school shootings. And I don't say that to discount the school shooting phenomenon at all, but merely to point out this was my bone of contingent with John. Oh, yeah. Yes. He had invoked, he said, this is like segregation. We have a moral stain. And I said, well, it's not exactly like segregation. I mean, let's break down exactly what's going on. And if you wanted to make a racial issue out of gun shootings, out of uh, uh, murder and homicide by, uh, by guns, uh, it would be a very different discussion than about schools. It would be about day in, day out street violence in American cities. Yes, in fact, that's right, and that is the more important point. So, so you you know you made both points, both the point about scale, uh, and the point about demographics uh, uh, of the victims, and and both points are important. But the latter point, which you just highlighted, is is in fact the more important. Yes, I agree. I didn't. I have a chance to listen to your interview with Barry and uh, David French, and I want to hear about it. But I want to ask you a pre preliminary question because, of course, I agree. You cited my um, the anatomy of racial inequality, my two thousand and two book, uh, where I posit, let's have an argument about racial inequality in which we assume, we tie our hands and we eschew at the outset any essentialist argument. You know, right. blacks are different in a fundamental way. The question I want to ask is about culture and whether or not, A, you think that kind of language is useful in describing and understanding this phenomenon of racial disparity and in interaction with police, with criminal participation, with violence, and so on, and B, whether or not you think the use of the culture argument in any way, shape, or form violates the anti-essentialism 
uh, Axiom? What an interesting and important question, Glenn. I, I hope we can spend a few minutes on this. This is, this is fundamental because you have been talking about culture uh, forcefully and repeatedly uh, over the last few months or years. Uh, I mean, you have all your career, but in particular in, in, in public. And uh, my answer would be this. So I would start with, with uh, actually your work uh, in another domain, your work with Hanming Fang, uh, you know, uh, where you actually looked at culture based on incentives. You know, why do particular cultural traits get entrenched in a particular community? Um, and you anal analyzed it in an entirely anti-essentialist manner, I would say. If you can try to understand culture, you know, through this anti-essentialist lens, then to me, culture ought to be part of the conversation. Uh, it, it's, it's legitimate to, uh, you know, to discuss it. It is not a violation of the axiom of anti-essentialism to discuss it. But unless one keeps in mind that culture is itself endogenous, to use, a, to use a, a, an expression from economics, that culture itself doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not genetically programmed into us. Uh, culture itself responds to incentives. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it develops in relation to the kind of conditions and circumstances that people find themselves in. Sometimes one loses sight of this. There's a foundation to culture. And if one loses sight of it, then the talk of culture starts to sound as if it is violating the axiom of anti-essentialism. And, you know, I, I wonder sometimes um, whether, whether you feel your listeners um, need to be reminded from time to time that, that culture is not entirely something that we are born with. You know, culture, culture develops and, it, you know, certain practices get entrenched partly because of the conditions and incentives and constraints that people face. And your work with Hanmin Fang made a frontal attack on this question. It's, it's exactly addressing this question. Uh in answer to your question, yes, I do think my audience sometimes needs to be reminded, and I think I may not be as mindful of the need to remind them uh, as I should be of the need to preface every reference to uh, cultural patterns. I mean, one thinks about marital and uh, childbearing behavior and uh, single-parent families and things of this kind is another arena in which you could bring to bear an analytical lens that says, yes, people have preferences or utility functions inclining them to behave in this way or that, but those uh, orientations and uh, attitudes and uh, uh, assessments and values are themselves the product of the social situation in which they find themselves. And so the yeah. taking it as if it were just a given, that's how yeah. they are. And then using that both as an explanation, but also as an ethical justification for indifference and neglect. Uh, that's how they are. There's nothing that can, I can be do about it. I'm not responsible for it. Yeah. That's how they are. I'm not responsible for it. So let me just explain briefly what Han Ming, Han Ming Fang yeah. is an economist at the University of Pennsylvania, and he and I have written some papers together basically around the idea dysfunctional identities can be rational. And what we do is create a theoretical world in which we show that if people have an opportunity to adopt their culture their orientation before they then engage in some activity and they are interacting with each other strategically, it may be an equilibrium, a consistent, stable pattern of mutually reinforcing behavior for them to adopt patterns of behavior, which when viewed from the outside would appear to be dysfunctional. Right. Um, and and we, we try to formalize that idea in a simple 
uh, theoretical uh, framework by way of making the point that you can, A, talk about culture because it does seem, at least as a first-order matter, to be an important part of the explanation of the phenomenon, but B, not uh, impute an intrinsic deficiency to the people who may be exhibiting dysfunctional cultural patterns. Well put, Glenn. And I would also point out that your essay, I believe in the Cato Journal on incarceration. I, I can't remember now. I believe that there was a series of commentaries on it. There, you talked also about, about uh, uh, crime and incarceration uh, and, and argued that it's a mistake to view this as a communal problem. It's an American problem because we collectively create the conditions under which certain types of actions are compelling to, to, to some people and not to others. And, and that, that's reflective of the idea um, that, uh, that, you know, that, that we jointly create each other's culture. If we are part of the same society, if we are Americans, um, you know, we are, we are you know, collectively creating and recreating even the subcultures among us, because these cultures are not independent. They're not on islands. Um, and, and there's a line in that essay, now I, I can't quote it uh, chapter and verse because I, uh, I, you know, it's been a while since I read it, but you talk about our responsibility for the choices that appear compelling to somebody else, even if we, you know, may disapprove of those actions. Choices which we must condemn. They're yeah. nevertheless compelling to the person making the choice yeah. and the structure in which that person is embedded, for which we have some responsibility. Exactly. Uh, is directly implicated in their uh, in their behavior. Exactly right. And in fact, if people don't want to go and look at the mathematics of your work with Hanmin Fang, you know, this may be this may be a good place to also, you know, that's in Cato to. Unbound. Cato Unbound is a web journal, and uh, the the uh, why are so many blacks in prison or something like that is the title of this of this symposium where I was facing off against James Q. Wilson. That's right. John, the late great political scientist, John Lott, uh, the uh, right of center, uh, numbers intensive and highly controversial pro open carry economist, <laughs> John Lott. He must keep you up at night trying to refute his stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, the thing is that uh, the thing is that this particular point that we've just discussed, I think, was essentially neglected in the responses to USA. It's sort of Blew by, uh, you know. They were, they were, you know, more along the lines of, well, what do we do, you know, about public safety and so on and so forth. These are legitimate issues to discuss, but this particular point, it's a subtle point, and uh, you know, it's a sort of, a, you know, methodological point that's almost pre-analytical. It just, it just didn't get any kind of response. But of course, you know, to me, you know, given my interests, I, I picked up on it immediately. If I see misbehaving people in a certain ethnic community in an enclave somewhere. Let them be blacks in some urban ghetto in some city. Uh, but they could be others. You know, uh, they could be Latino or they could be Irish uh, working class youth of a different time. Or they, you know. Or people coming across the border, you know, trying to, trying to get across the Rio Grande, for example. And I take this as if this were, uh, a, a, as you say, communal failure. It's a communal disgrace. Look at how those people are. Yeah, yeah. When in fact, it's a national failure and it's a national yeah. disgrace because we're entailed in even their own, uh, you know, misshapen, uh, uh, counterproductive, self-destructive um, patterns. We, we are entailed in that in, in a way. And this is, as uh, Josh Cohen, the philosopher, has, has taught me, really, this is about responsibility, which is a moral question. 
It, it's yeah. not a social scientific question. It's an ethical question. To say I'm not, I have no, I wash my hands of it. I have nothing to do with it. That's them. What are those people doing to my country? Right. Is, is to take oneself out of the realm of being responsible for what has happened. When in right. fact, indirectly, you may well be uh, uh, responsible and you know, implicated. Right. right. And, and the lesson is not that one ought to ignore the, you know, the conditions or the behavior or that we ought to do nothing about it. We ought to try to understand it, try to address it, try to deal with it. And, you know, maybe James Kirilson had, you know, uh, solutions that we, we may want to endorse or not endorse. But one ought to recognize that it's, you know, you can't separate yourself from people with whom you share society, uh, ultimately, if you're a humanist. Uh, Jim Wilson is dead. He's not here to uh, speak to this. My guess is that he'd say the programs that I think might be helpful, um, sending nurses home with indigent mothers from the hospital to help to tutor them about how to take care of their children. Um, he would point to penalties to disincentive, disincentivize, to create a disincentive for certain kinds of behavior, you know, criminal behavior and violence and whatnot. Uh, he would call for moral education. I mean, he had a book called The Moral Sense in which he extolled the significance of the uh, uh, realm of, uh, of uh, values. Uh, as a, but but I, I think he would basically say, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I throw my hands up. I mean, I can't remake the black family. I, I wish that I could. You won't even let me talk about the stuff. Yeah, some of the most in, uh, intimate stuff because it's verboten, it's it's politically incorrect, uh, and he throws his hands up. Yeah, I, yeah, I just, um, I, you know, I do think, uh, I do think one needs to talk about things, uh, but at the same time, uh, I, like, you know, like I said about the issue of culture and endogeneity and essentialism, it's also, it's also good to talk about them in a way, you know, that is precise and clear and makes one's values and commitments transparent. Um, but uh, so, you know. <laughs> Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. 
Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Have you seen, I, I just want to ask you something about the general discussion of racial inequality issues in the country. Since the publication of your book, these last uh, two, three years, um, the, the fervor around Black Lives Matter uh, has, has reached fever pitch in uh, 2000 with the killing of George Floyd and has since, it seems, ebbed. We're starting to see some political pushback against the uh, progressive DAs in one place or another. There's grumbling and, and some signs of, of a shifting uh, of a shifting tide, and I'm I'm wondering if uh, if you think that's a good thing or or how you're how you're processing the uh, we, we may have reached a kind of peak uh, anti racism wokeness and and we may be in in retreat from some of those uh, those more intense uh, affirmations of the diversity equity and inclusion the Supreme Court. I don't know, again, what you would say, but I would bet money that they're going to significantly undercut racial affirmative action in the decision that uh, they'll be coming to in, in the fall. Uh, do, do you see, what, what do you see uh, by way of the drift? And we both write about and think about these issues a yeah. lot. Well, you know, as you know, I'm a great admirer of your work on self-censorship. You know, at your conference uh, in, your, in, your, in your honor last month, um, I spoke about this paper, and uh, and certainly you can see a lot of that playing out on campuses and in communities. You know, in terms of discussion of issues, uh, where where uh, people are very guarded in in what they feel that they can say and talk about, uh, and so so there there is that. There's no question. But Glenn, there's also there's also something very very disturbing going out going going on in terms of the reaction to what has been labeled critical race theory that. In fact, the label is being applied so broadly as to be uh, um, dealing with, you know, sometimes just 
you know, basic historical fact. Uh, so, sometimes I get the impression. And I just read a piece, I think it was uh, yesterday or today, uh, in ProPublica about, uh, about an educator from Maryland, uh, her name Cecilia Lewis. I don't know if you saw this, but... I didn't. You know, she, was, uh, she was hired into, uh, you know, I think Cherokee County, Georgia, to, um, uh, you know, um, by the school district. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, she happens to be black. She, you know, the, the position itself was defined to some degree um, in the language of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, although her background, I mean, she, you know, she actually initially thought CRT meant something totally different. She, she's really not aware of any connection to, to, to this kind of um, uh, legal scholarship. But in any case, be that as it may, she, can't, you know, she, she accepted a position in Georgia and was completely hounded out uh, um, to the point where, you know, I think the position was retracted, went to a neighboring county, Cobb County, and, and, and was followed over there. And, and really a whole bunch of people are swarming and partly through a coordinated national campaign where a script is being distributed. So the anti-CRT uh, um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, mob attacks, in fact, are, are just as disturbing to me as the as the self-censorship and the unwillingness to discuss certain issues and certain things that you have pointed out um, that, that may well be disturbing that, that, that might be happening in, in classrooms. I think there are legitimate points to be made about what our educators are doing in the classroom, but, but that's not what I see what's going on. What I see what's going on is that there are, there are things that ought to be debated and questioned and, and, and brought to the surface, uh, uh, but, but instead of that, there's a, there's a very, uh, uh, active, nationally coordinated campaign to to mob school districts in ways that uh, that gets you know innocent people who are trying to just basically uh, um, you know do, do right by the children um, you know hounded out of jobs or or school boards and so on. So I I'm disturbed by what's going on, but it's not just I'm not just disturbed you know by 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 you know. The content of instruction and the, you know, and the unwillingness to discuss it openly, I'm also disturbed by the reaction to it. So it's it's a depressing time with regard to the education system for me personally. Yeah. Okay. I I don't know if I agree in every respect. I mean, I do acknowledge the existence of this uh, reaction that you're talking about, and it can be disturbing. As disturbing as the uh, underlying predicate, I don't know. I mean. Um, We'll we'll have to see. I mean, there is a kind of McCarthyist thing. You say a coordinated campaign. Christopher Rufo's name is going to come up here. He's the journalist, writes at the City Journal, Manhattan Institute, who's made a big deal out of uncovering the excesses of critical race theory. Critical race theory going from a very discreet uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell kind of legal scholarship thing into a you know, broad umbrella that includes everything from teaching the 1619 project in schools to anti-racism seminars for, uh, you know, kids to make them aware of, et cetera. Ibram X. Kendi and books that are adopted. Do we read these books? And yeah, some of the banning of books and the broad, uh, heavy-handed, you want to teach people about the history of race in this country. I don't trust you to do it because I think you're going to indoctrinate our kids. You're going to make the white kids hate each other and whatnot. Yeah. Sure, sure. There's some of that going on. But what I would say is, I say this with respect. I wonder how you react to this. I say this with respect to the discussion of crime and policing and violence. 
You play by the race card, you live by it, you die by it. The, 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 don't defund the police, deracialize the discussion about police. If you insist on making race the predicate of every discussion about social obligation and justice, you're going to get a backlash because how can you make white people into um, the uh, sole morally responsible agents of the persistence of racial inequality? How, how can you presume of a person in virtue of the fact that they're white, that they're somehow privileged, and not expect the reaction amongst some white people to be, you're calling attention to my race, you're making race susceptible. Okay, then let's talk about race. Let's talk about race. You don't like Western civilization? Where's your civilization? You think that the United States of America has blood on its hands? Well, how did the modern world get made and what other world would you rather live in? Go anywhere and you're going to find a mess of blood, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I'm not surprised that if you call attention to white cops beating up black kids, somebody else is going to call attention to black thugs beating up innocent white people. And do you know there are a lot more of the latter than there are of the former? You can't control the racial thing. You play that card and the whirlwind is what you'll reap. Best to talk about people in their universal humanistic uh, uh, statuses uh, as uh, those deserving of uh, the dignity of uh, other humankind than to racialize every discussion. The fact that Brown doesn't have uh, the same percentage of black kids majoring in physics as it's majoring in social uh, sociology uh, needn't constitute an indictment of Brown as a racist institution. Uh, the fact that a kid is uncomfortable when someone makes, makes an argument about a, a relevant political issue, Katanji Brown Jackson's status as the most qualified person to be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, for example, you're going to make a federal case out of Elia Shapiro at the Georgetown Law School, you're going to harden the hearts of many, many people in the legal profession who don't want that kind of uh, racial uh, indoctrination imposed upon themselves, and they're going to fight back, et cetera. I mean, okay. in other words, I think we're reaping to a certain extent what we have sown in this backlash. Again, but who is reaping and who is sowing? The people who is doing the sowing, you know, in the, in the um, context of the ideas that you have just, just described, are not the ones who are experiencing the backlash. They are celebrated. Their careers are, are, are perfectly fine. They are, they are, they are you know, inoculated against the backlash. The backlash is against these educators, the frontline workers who, who really don't know what on earth is going on. They, they don't even know what critical race theory is. And they're being attacked you know, in school board meetings and basically told that you know, they're indoctrinating the kids. And you know, honestly, a lot of them are bewildered by this. The backlash is not falling on the people uh, who, in, in your telling, have triggered the backlash. Uh, you know, Backlash is spread far and wide on, on folks who have you know, no idea how on earth this came to be. So I think it's well, not reaping and sowing. You were just at Barry Weiss's uh, uh, common sense yeah. uh, substack. Yeah, I was. So you have followed, I assume, her reporting on what, what is going on in American uh, K-12 through education, especially not only her personally, but her, her column especially in the elite schools in New York City where uh, parents have been in revolt, some parents, so-called conservative parents, because they are, these are not McCarthyite fascists who are, who are trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get um, uh, Toni Morrison's books out of the library. 
These are people who object when uh, a teacher says, I want to show Glenn Lowry and uh, John McWhorter and Roland Fryer's work to my students to counteract uh, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the balance and Ibram X. Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates, and are told by the headmaster, no, you can't do that because then the kids will be, et cetera. And I'm sorry for the personal reference, but I do take it personally. I take it personally that Clarence Thomas, a black man, one of the most significant figures in American history of the last 50 years, whose, whose story is absolutely iconic. He happens to be a conservative. Uh, is remembered in a single, uh, if you ask one of these uh, progressive teachers to talk to their kids about Clarence Thomas, can you imagine what they're going to say to them? And, you know, in other words, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. We, the, the narrative is contested in, a, in uh, educational circles and certainly in higher education circles, but I think it's also true in K through 12. The progressives have by far had the upper hand. The, the backlash is calling to account people who have abused their power to enforce uh, a particular way of looking at these racial uh, issues on, on these kids. And it's fair ground. It's, that's where I'm going with this. Let the, let's fight it out. It's, it's fair no, ground. There's no question that in some schools, especially elite private schools, yes, it's fair ground. But this has gone way beyond that. And I, I would urge you and others to read this ProPublica Pro report on on Cobb County and Cherokee County, I will. Um, Georgia, where you know the the you know the you know extraordinary level of malice directed towards somebody who was completely undeserving. Um, it, it's a, it's just a case. You know, you talked earlier about anecdotal evidence versus statistical evidence. I will. Yeah, but it's deeply researched. And okay, maybe there is a, an agenda there. Maybe there is a bias there in the reporting. But I believe that. I believe that, you know, focusing on the sort of elite Manhattan institutions where, uh, you know, certain changes to curricula may have may have unsettled parents in a way that's entirely justified and where the pushback, you know, is itself justified um, is, I think, uh, focusing on 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 too narrow uh, um, a range of phenomena that this, this backlash goes way beyond that into just about, you know, it's it's the, it's the folks who are generally you know, centrist maybe right of center, left of center, doing their jobs as educationists, and they've got you know they've got some um, you know there there are darts being thrown that are hitting people who are really undeserving, uh, way beyond the elite Manhattan school uh, cultures. They, these are these are very you know I'm sure that I'm sure that it's uh, uh, the phenomenon you're describing is is accurate. I just don't think that's really all that widespread, and and where the backlash is coming is not discriminating or not distinguishing between where it's deserved and where it's not. So that's that's what I'd say about it. I you think and I disagree about the 1619 project, don't we? I'm mentioning the 1619 we do, we project. Do. We do. So I, I so so for me, so let me let me tell you where I stand on that. We you know I think it's good for us to talk about that a little bit. Okay. I, I'm I'm American. I mean, you know, I <laughs> I'm a naturalized American, very happy to be so and and uh, but I was born in India, as you know. I, I was there till the age of eleven. Um and um you know, India got its independence from the British in 1947. Um, so, as a republic, you know, it's been it's been in existence for for you know less than a century. It's it's uh, to think to think of Indian society or Indian culture or somehow Indian identity as as dating back to 1947 when we got uh, independence from the British uh, would be actually absurd. When one thinks of Indian culture and Indian society, 
people talk, go back millennia, 3,000 years or so, you know, there's a society that's existing and there is a transition to independence at some point. To me, the, the American transition to independence is at least in some respect similar. There's a society that exists. It's been functioning. And folks, you know, the founding fathers themselves are, 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 are you know, products of that society. Um, and then you get independence and the society continues and changes direction in a very substantial, uh, substantial way that is absolutely pioneering. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the American experiment, the constitutional democracy, the way in which religion was taken out of, uh, you know, the, the, the domain of the state. I mean, there are remarkable things. I, I revere the Constitution. I really do. The Bill of Rights in particular. And, and, uh, and I don't deny that it is a world historic document. It predates the French Revolution and it is, it is something that is really significant in human history. That said, you know, what, you know, there are, there are, you know, a couple of centuries of existence of American society, which wasn't called American society necessarily, or didn't see itself as a, as a society necessarily in the same way. And really, the, to me, the flavor of the 1619, the, 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 the fundamental truth that is coming out of this is that we really ought not to think of our nation's founding as being uh, uh, tied to the change in direction uh, uh, that was taken in 1776. It, it would be absurd to think of India as being founded in 1947. It, it doesn't, wouldn't make any sense, uh, although it's a, it's a very, very important uh, event in Indian history and the Indian constitution and so on was, was uh, uh, adopted around that time. So that's, that's how I look at it. So, so to and me- I, that, I would just interject, it depends on what you mean by founding. I mean, founding yeah. doesn't have to exclude a pre- uh, it, it could be the embodiment of certain institutions, the establishment of certain legal uh, or, you know, uh, arrangements could be what one meant by founding without having to exclude the fact that there had been an enterprise ongoing before, before the, um, the period 1786 to 1787. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I just think that, uh, you know, there are, there are various breaks in, 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 in American history. Well, I mean, the founding fathers were hypocrites. Uh, the uh, words that uh, the noble words of the Declaration and uh, of the preamble to the Constitution and so forth were false when they were written. And black, it's taken black people these two hundred and some years in order to make them true. I mean, that's that's more than simply saying there existed a society prior to uh, the <laughs> Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin yeah, Franklin uh, and company. Agreed. I mean, there are definitely claims. Uh, uh, on which the critics have focused, um, um, where, the, where, where the criticisms have merit. Um, that said, so, so there's, an, there's an essay, um, uh, trying to think now, is it Ralph Ellison uh, um, in Time Magazine 1970? Um, uh, let me quickly, can I quickly look it up? Uh, sure, uh, sure. Uh, let me just see, because it's an extraordinary essay. Um, you're speaking to the man who says uh, the case for black patriotism. That's one of my recent popular uh, articles. So, uh, yeah, um, the question is what what kind of patriotism, I suppose. Yeah, but but basically, um, yeah, there's an essay. I think it is uh, uh, was 1970 in Time magazine. I'm just looking it up right now. Yeah, uh, um, that's right. What America would be like without blacks is the is the title of the essay. And forget about the 1619 project. Let's just focus on this essay. Okay. It is absolutely mind-blowing. It is a beautiful, beautiful essay. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I wish, uh, you know, people would read that before discussing the 1619 project because it provides an extraordinary context. So what it does is it describes, uh, you know, uh, 
America, the American language, the American culture, the American uh, creed, uh, you know, uh, the, the language uh, of Mark Twain, the influence on the writers regarding the Civil War and so on and so forth, and the, the vernacular. And, you know, it's mostly about literature because it's Ellison. Um, but um, but <clears throat> the point he makes is that the point he makes is that there's something very distinctly American about this that is that is really not European. You know that that is something that is not uh, you know in in the sense that one doesn't think of jazz as a European music. Um, jazz we think of as as uh, you know uh, yeah I get it having African American it's associated with 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 African Americans but. Even things that are associated with America, the, the you know Hemingway or um, Mark Twain or so on, are are fundamentally infused with the black experience in America in ways that make us a very very hybrid culture. Um, I I don't actually personally I mean people might think this is absurd but I don't think of America actually as being a Western country. It's you know I I, I really think of it as being something you know uh, unique actually. Uh, in having, you know, Western and non-Western elements. But Ellison's essay, to me, expresses, I think, uh, uh, something that if one looks charitably at the, at the 1619 Project, okay. it's really something similar. That it's, we yeah, should yeah. mention Albert Murray here as well, the yeah. uh, I'm the Americans, and uh, he was a contemporary of Ellison and a good friend of his. But yeah, that the United States, the American culture is a unique uh, hybrid uh, created in the interaction between European and um, and African. It is, it is. and it's actually elements. A, it's a humanist view. It, it's not divisive, actually, and I, I do think that some of the sixteen nineteen project does come across as divisive, actually. Um, uh, but uh, but but what Ellison is trying to do here, it seems to me, is to actually say that look, uh, you know, white Americans are a long, long way away from Europeans. They are really, really different. And why are they different? It's because you know, the history has been so closely entwined with the fact that, you know, you have shared a society with people who don't have European origins and, and you know, that something has been created that is actually fundamentally different and new. So we'll link, so, we'll link to this essay in the description of I this think, post. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think it's worth reading. So, so, you know, if one, I think that there are, there are echoes of this in, in, in the 1619 project, but it, it's, it's, it comes across in a more divisive way than it needed to, I, I would say. But anyway, we, we yeah, <laughs> we could debate that. Why don't we talk about guns uh, to yeah, close out here? Because yeah, your right. your observations about in the uh, wake of the Uvalde, Texas school shooting and that market in Buffalo, uh, mass shooting with automatic heavy weapons by mentally deranged uh, young people who have access to these weapons, and then the national debate that has ensued about that, with calls for. Um, sensible gun control, the president Biden making uh, speeches to this effect and other activists uh, demonstrating uh, to demand that something be done and the uh, development of legislation in the Congress around this issue. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's I, I going on and what your what your thinking is? Yeah, I would love to, Glenn, because it will bring us back to our discussion of homicide, you know, that we started off with um, yeah. in, in a way that sort of square, you know, sort of uh, completes the circle. So the legislation that's being discussed, it was announced by, uh, um, you know, it, it's, um, uh, is it Chris Murphy, I think, and John Cornyn, uh, but, but there are a whole bunch of people involved with this, uh, these discussions, and they've, they've come up with a framework for legislation that, that, that looks like it's going to take shape. And basically, you know, the elements of that, um, so one part of it is, uh, is uh, um, 
funding by the federal government for the states to set up red flag laws. So if people are, are, are judged uh, by law enforcement or by their families or other members of the household uh, to be a danger to themselves or to others, uh, uh, and, and um, you know, a judge agrees that their firearms can be, uh, can be taken from them, you know, either given to somebody else uh, for safekeeping or by law enforcement uh, temporarily. So, so those are so-called red flag laws. Uh, which presumably are which are designed to take away from people who are legal owners of their firearms their weapons on a temporary basis, you know, based on a procedure. Uh, so it's funding for this, from the federal government for the states to do this. This would have an impact on suicide rates, gun firearm suicide, I believe, because people in distress, uh, uh, you know, might be flagged and and you know uh, lose access to their guns temporarily over a period in which they may have used them on themselves, and in and in some cases mass shootings. It might have an impact on mass shootings also if people are flagged uh, uh, as, as being a danger to others if they've, um, uh, if they've been identified in that way. Another piece of this legislation has to do with um, people who are 18 to 21 years old uh, who can buy long guns, you know, shotguns and rifles uh, uh, right now, whereas the age for handguns is 21. Uh, those people will have more uh, sort of a, a more detailed background check, more uh, you know enhanced uh, interrogation of their prior record, including juvenile records, um, and have to wait. Uh, uh, they wouldn't be able to instantaneously acquire firearms. So, so that's another piece of this legislation. Another piece of this legislation, the framework rather, is the so closure of the so-called boyfriend loophole, where you know people who have been um, convicted of domestic uh, violence uh, um, who were. Uh, who were married to the victim or who were cohabiting or who had a child with the victim are prevented from, from uh, currently prevented from acquiring firearms. And this would then extend to, uh, you know, partners, intimate partners who were not necessarily married or cohabiting with the victim. Uh, so it's an extension of the basic uh, uh, existing law to cover, um, you know, boyfriends or, or uh, other kind, other intimate partners. Now, there's, there's also some, you know, uh, federal legislation with regard to uh, straw purchases and with regard to gun trafficking. And this is, you know, this is the one that links most closely to the bulk of homicides. We talked about, we talked about the homicides, you know, that have attracted attention, Uvalde and Buffalo, as being about 3% of total killings in the U.S. annually, uh, these mass shootings. Um, a lot of the homicides, the rest of them, the rest of the 19,000, involve um, lost and stolen weapons. Uh, they involve straw purchases where people will buy uh, on behalf of somebody else. Uh, and they involve trafficking. And I think this legislation will do some good, but it will not do much good, uh, you know, unless one can really do something about straw purchasing and trafficking. And just having legislation to this effect with criminal penalties uh, may or may not have an impact. I don't know. But what I was talking to with Barry Weiss and David French on, on, on Barry's uh, podcast was to say, basically, you know, if you have legal gun owners, so I, I think you'll enjoy the discussion because I, I, I feel that people who would like a very, you know, muscular, strong gun policy uh, in the United States don't really take into account adequately the fact that the Second Amendment not just is not just in existence and constrains legislators, but it's actually very deeply popular, you know, in, in large segments of American society and and is is you know very much tied to people's identity, actually. And so 
So, you know, the idea of having an Australia type policy where you have massive gun buybacks and you, you know, ban the sales of certain types of weapons is just not feasible. So I've been trying to think of what's feasible and what will actually have an impact on homicides in the US. And you've got to stop this flow of guns from people who have purchased them legally with, you know, a background check uh, uh, possibly, but which end up flowing into cities and end up causing so much mayhem when escalating disputes get, get, get violent. Um, and, and, and the kinds of things that I was thinking about, uh, I don't know what you would think of this, you know, is incentives to basically prevent guns from being used if they don't belong to the legal owner. This, this to me would do the greatest good would be if guns could not be used by their legal owners, uh, could not be used by other than their legal owners, the way that your phone cannot be used if it's, if it's taken. Now, how might one do that? So some states have got safe storage laws, you know, that where, where you're required to store your gun uh, in a way that's safe, in a safe, for example, um, or, or with a locking device. But those seem to me to be largely unenforceable. Um, I think one of the things that could make a massive difference and is sadly missing from this legislation would be if you had a reporting requirement. If you, you know, if, you, if your gun was lost or stolen, you have to report it. If you don't report it and that gun gets used in a crime somewhere, you are liable. That liability should be covered by mandatory insurance. And essentially, you know, you know what that would do is it would, it would create incentives for safe storage um, and for reporting a gun that is lost and stolen. And it would prevent you from buying a gun from somebody else and later you know, pretending that it was uh, just lost and stolen. It would prevent you know, if you have a red flag law that's implemented and somebody says, okay, we're going to take away your guns because you've been flagged, it would prevent you from saying, oh, I don't have it anymore. It's lost, and lost or stolen, you know, because you'd have to report it at the time or within a certain period of time after it was lost or stolen. Um, so things like that. I, I, I don't want to keep talking. I'd like to get your response. But basically, to try to prevent the flow of firearms from those who are legal owners to, you know, uh, you know, the places where they're, where they're illegally used. You have about 400,000 guns a year lost or stolen, Glenn. And only wow. about 60% of those actually reported lost or stolen. What's happening to the remaining 40%? Um, it, you know, either they are straw purchases in disguise um, or, you know, they're genuinely, genuinely lost or stolen and people, you know, just simply have not bothered to report it. Um, or maybe they're actually, uh, uh, you know, part of a, a, a trafficking network. Uh, somebody what do is, we know about the, um, about the status of guns that are actually used in homicides? So there are homicides yeah, and uh, there are suicides. Yeah. Uh, I assume that for the suicides, we, we know the weapon. I mean, we find the weapon at the site of the, of the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and we know its, its origins and whatnot. But what about homicides? Are those mostly being committed by people who did not acquire the weapon in a, in a legal manner? I, I don't know what mostly, but significantly, yes, about a third of guns that are recovered at crime scenes were originally lost or stolen. Um, and and wow. uh, that, you know, I, I think that would be an underestimate. So I don't know if it's the majority, but it's certainly a significant minority. I mean, just imagine what would happen you know, so, uh, so liability—that means if I if my gun is stolen and I don't report it, it's subsequently used in a crime. I'm now subject to being sued for by the, uh, by the victim by the victim, which means that I would want to insure myself against that eventuality when I purchase the gun. Yeah, uh, the the 
uh, insurance rate is going to reflect the insurer's anticipation of of likely claims. Yes, I, I'm not. And uh, what what's the incentive now for me to report my? Oh, because then if it is used, I I don't get a hit. Yeah, yeah. And actually, this would this the, the insurance would uh, you know change the. Uh, change the price disparity between uh, uh, conventional weapon and what are called smart guns. Smart guns where you have biometric uh, uh, identification, just like your phone, or you have got radio communication with a bracelet or a watch, which prevents it being used if it's lost or stolen. You can have, you know, you do exist, the technology exists for guns that simply can't be used or can't easily be used by people who are not the legal owners. It recognizes the palm print or the fingerprint. Yes, and then has a backup system because that's a failure point, right? Uh, you know, if it's wet, you know, sometimes you you probably have the experience where your phone is not going to read your fingerprint if it's wet and so on. So you can have backup systems, uh, you know, so that you can use it in a hurry. And actually, you know, when people say that, look, if I've got a gun for protection, I'd like to have the access to it immediately. I don't want to put it in a safe and it's going to go fumble with it if somebody breaks into my home. Fair enough. But with a smart gun, actually, you have you have immediate access to it, and you don't have to worry about it being lost and stolen and used in a crime, because it can't be, or it can't easily be. So, so these are the kinds of things that I'm trying to think about, precisely because of what you said to John McWhorter, which is that most homicides are not mass shooting, and let's try to solve this problem. Let's try to let's try to reduce the flow of guns into states, uh, you know, where where they end up in the hands of folks who are not their legal owners. Well, this this seems. Sensible. I, I the NRA no doubt opposes uh, such. I I don't know. I, you know, I my reaction. You know, I think the the reaction that I've seen. Of course, there are folks who who, who will object uh, strenuously. But I don't know. I I, I think that there's this, there's a sense among people who see themselves as responsible gun owners. Um, you know, to to have policies that will somehow you know identify and punish irresponsible gun owners. So I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say, but um, but my focus, as as we had at the beginning of this conversation, is on the nineteen thousand homicides, not on the five hundred. I mean, of course, the five hundred matter also, and there are children involved. There are completely innocent victims of these things. Um, uh, How but, do you account for the order of magnitude difference in the relative frequency of of homicide amongst African Americans as opposed to the larger the society as a whole? This is uh, this is a really big question, and I felt you know uh, important that Dan and I address it in our book and in our prior work. Um, partly because it's so important to understand the fact is out there, the statistics are out there, and it's really really important to try to understand it in non-essentialist terms. Um, so so it's so I, I'll tell you my interpretation of this. You know, there's a quote. There's a quote uh, from from Tanasi Coates uh, in his memoir, Between the World and Me, uh, in which he talks about the youth that he grew up with in Baltimore. And he yeah. describes them as being dangerously afraid. And that's a very unusual expression. You know, you, you normally think of people as being either dangerous or afraid. You think of people as being courageous or cowardly. You, you, you don't think of these two things necessarily in the same breath, uh, concatenated in quite that way. But one of the ideas that Dan and I have been exploring over the course of many years is the idea that once you think about preemption, the way that Schelling described uh, uh, in, in his work, you know, people who are fearsome, you know, people who, you know, of whom other people are afraid, ought to be fearful because they are going to be targets of preemptive violence. Similarly, people who are afraid are actually dangerous because they are the ones with the greatest incentives for engaging in preemptive violence. 
So when you have a situation where people are armed, this is why I'm focusing on the flow of guns, uh, um, you know, uh, across borders, across states, uh, especially if the origin is, is with a legal owner. Um, you know, you may have no incentive at all to engage in deadly violence other than self-protection. Uh, but that's a pretty powerful motive. And of course, you know, if you follow the reasoning that Schelling identified, expecting other people to, to, to hurt you through self-protection itself creates an incentive for you to en en engage in preemptive action and so on, up the hierarchy of beliefs. So you can get a situation when there's a climate of fear, people are going to be quick on the trigger. And if they're quick on the trigger, you know, that, that, that further incentivizes, incentivizes and entrenches that, that tendency. Now, the one other thing in this equation, which we haven't talked about, is drugs. And uh, you, you had a colleague, I think Jeff Myron was a colleague of yours at... Uh, at Boston University so yeah, many years yeah. ago. So, so, so Jeff Myron has an interesting quote in one of his books where he says that, you know, when you have transactions between people where disputes cannot be settled in the courts because yeah. the transaction itself is illicit, um, guns substitute for lawyers. So he talks about guns as being a substitute for lawyers. If you're having a transaction yeah. over some legitimate purchase, a real estate transaction, you'll go to court. Right. You know, you'll hire a lawyer. If you can't go to court because it's a drug transaction, you know, you, you, you take the law into your own hands. And so, so drug policy and gun policy are really intimately connected also in this way. And, and we saw it in Chicago. There's, there's some literature that suggests that, you know, the prohibition era, you know, in Chicago and other places saw a spike in... Um, in gun violence, and there's, there's other work in South Carolina um, uh, where, where restrictions on the sale of alcohol were associated with an increase in, 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 in gun violence. But let's, uh, let's go back to the so drugs, okay, and the inability to resolve disputes in a court of law, yeah. leading to a kind of state of nature in which the disputes are resolved by force. But let's go back to the preemption point because. Yeah. If I'm going to use that to explain differences between ethnic racial uh, population aggregates and the frequency of, of homicide, I need some kind of multiple equilibrium feature to the, to the, uh, to the escalating uh, self-fulfilling belief. The yeah. fearsome person should be fearful because people who are afraid of him are motivated to take action in advance of him being able to inflict damage. And the fearful person is a dangerous person because they are inclined to get ahead of the game. Is it possible to think about that uh, observation in, in a way in which you can account for two different communities resolving that spiral of potential uh, violent interaction in dramatically different ways? Yes, but it's not the the answer is not uh, from multiple equilibria. Um, the answer is to do with differential clearance rates, homicide clearance rates. So if you look at the rates at which murders are solved, so this is I'm I'm so glad you asked this question because it, you know it, you cannot understand this phenomena without thinking about homicide clearance rates, witness cooperation, uh, um, and you know uh, the the possibility of being killed with impunity. This is this is absolutely fundamental to the argument. So you look at homicide clearance rates in Chicago, Baltimore, they're, you know, a third, you know, well under a half. Uh, other communities will have clearance rates, uh, murder clearance rates up, you know, 70% or upwards. So there's a big, big difference in homicide clearance rates. And 
uh, and, and it's a racial difference. So there's a Washington Post database actually that, that tracks this with about, I think about 50,000 homicides or more now. And you get a very, very large difference in the likelihood that a murder will be solved if the victim is black as compared to the likelihood that the murder will be solved if the victim is white. Now, why is this? So there's two, two different answers to this. The, the community answer uh, um, or, or the answer, um, uh, you know, that you hear from some quarters is that the police and the authorities and the administration of cities don't care. They care less if the victim is black than if the victim is white. There's less resources invested in it, uh, in, in, in solving the crime. And so therefore, the clearance rate is, is, uh, is lower. But it's very important to also think about the law enforcement answer. So if you ask law enforcement, why is it that you have a racial disparity in homicide clearance rates? Why is it that black Americans can be killed with impunity to a much larger degree than white Americans? The answer that you get from law enforcement, at least, you know, that I have seen uh, from, you know, Jill, we should mention Jill Leovi's book, Ghetto Side, it's a brilliant which book. is a very close uh, account of law enforcement interacting on homicide cases in Los Angeles. It's a brilliant maybe book. Five years ago or so, but it's a very important book. It's a very important book. Um, but there are also studies from Los Angeles uh, and other places um, uh, that, that ask for a law enforcement response. Why is it that the clearance rate in community A is so much lower than community B? And the answer you get from law enforcement consistently is witness cooperation. You cannot solve a murder unless you get witness cooperation. Um, and without the witness cooperation, you know, you're going to have these kind of disparities and people do not cooperate with us. If the victim is black, it is quite quite uh, likely that the witnesses will also be black. They don't want to cooperate with us. This is the law enforcement view. And so therefore we cannot, we have obstacles, we have burdens that we don't face with white communities where we get much more witness cooperation if there's a murder. Now, with regard to witness cooperation, why is there less witness cooperation? Here, again, you have got two narratives that are very, very different. One has to do with a, a, a sort of a, 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 you know, a general, general uh, um, cultural ambivalence with regard to uh, police and, you know, the, yeah. the yeah. anti-snitching norms and just generally, right. Right. you know, the, the idea that snitches get stitches and so on. So you, so you have this and one can look at it in cultural terms like, like uh, um, you know, you have described early in this conversation. You know, one can think of that as a cultural trait. But there's another very basic fundamental reason why you might get less witness cooperation is because of generalized aggression in police practices uh, um, that are not related to homicide at all. So, for example, there, were, you know, there was a Department of Justice uh, uh, investigation of the Ferguson Police Department after the killing of Michael Brown. Actually, there were two. There was one uh, on the killing itself. And there was one on, um, yeah. on, on general police practices. And, and, and they actually told two very different stories. The one on police practices found, you know, extraordinarily abusive uh, set of practices where people were being treated like a piggy bank, you know, I mean, you know, for very minor offenses, getting fined, getting stopped, getting citations, and then having these things build up through, through additional fees and fines. Um, so so there, was, there was a lot of, uh, you know, really uh, uh, aggravating set of practices to which people were subject. And given those conditions, nobody's going to want to come forward as a witness. You, you just avoid as much interaction as you can. Um, and, and, and when that happens, you know, the circle is closed. You've got, you know, low witness cooperation, low homicide clearance rates, greater incentives for preemption. 
and you end up with, uh, with high homicide rates. So, and, and guns, of course, amplify everything in this picture. That's the, roughly the kind of story that Dan and I tell in our book. And, you know, it's a very difficult problem to solve, but I think that, you know, it's a, you know I, I think that, you know, the way we put it and the way Jill Liovi puts it actually uh, uh, is that, you know, over-policing and under-protection go hand in hand, they're two sides of the same coin. You know, you need to, you need to build trust and you cannot well, build trust with generalized I, I mean, with respect to Ferguson, it was very clear, wasn't it, that that second Justice Department report was a uh, bone thrown to the progressive activists, given that the first report could not confirm the popular narrative that Michael Brown had been murdered by Darren Wilson. Why, uh, why do you say that? I mean, it, why, why can't the two re, uh, reports be seen? Well, I mean, for example, for example, the finding that uh, blacks were disproportionately likely to be stopped for traffic violations uh, doesn't uh, prove that the uh, police are uh, racially discriminatory in the way in which they're treating people. It could be that the traffic flows through Ferguson, uh, given the, uh, the logistics, the organization of economic activity in the St. Louis suburban area, were disproportionately black because other black communities were traveling through Ferguson in order to co uh, conduct their commerce. Uh, that's the, the other side that the Eric Holder account of that report would, would never mention. I mean... I mean, it wasn't just traffic. People sitting in their cars after basketball games. You know, there, there were a lot of incidents. There's no mention of the rhetoric of the Black Lives Matter uh, people and, and the Colin Kaepernick knee-taking and the general uh, uh, anti-police attitude in uh, certain quarters of uh, Black progressive uh, thought as being account responsible for uh, people not cooperating with the police. Snitches get stitches didn't come out of the fact that police departments were uh, were uh, manhandling and mistreating black people. It 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 it's so it seems to me. So and and moreover, you don't need to uh, postulate uh, uh, mistreatment by police departments of black communities to get the effect that you're looking for, which is low levels of witness cooperation. That could simply be a consequence of the, of the logic of the equilibrium. That is, I've got low cooperation, hence people can kill with impunity, hence witnesses think there's a very high chance that there'll be retaliation against them by criminals whom they testify against because the criminals think they can get away with the retaliation, hence the witnesses don't cooperate, hence the criminals in fact do get away with the retaliation. That, that's an equilibrium all by itself. I yeah, don't need... in fact, you're absolutely right. And we discussed this and we call it collective silence in the, in the, in the, in the book. And we, we connect it to actually the, the huge amount of uh, 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 sexual abuse, uh, sexual harassment that has been associated with certain individuals, Larry Nassar, for example, with regard to the U.S. gymnastics team, uh, Harvey Weinstein, uh, Bill Cosby, and so on. They're, 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 you know, people can be serial abusers, and nobody comes forward because they don't know, you know, if there'll be anybody else to corroborate the testimony, or they don't even know whether there are other victims exist. So you can, have, you know, you can get this situation of collective silence. That's right. But I will say one thing, Glenn. At the peak of the stop and frisk uh, uh, policy in New York in New York City, you had almost 700,000 stops. Uh, that's around 2009. Um, and, you know, for stops, uh, you know, the New York, NYPD has to fill out a form explaining why they stopped the person. And when they indicated that it was suspicion of a possession of a weapon, 97% of the time, nothing was recovered. And among the 3% of the time that it was recovered, it was mostly knives. Um, and uh, so, so what's going to be the 
attitude of all those people. Now, at the time, the argument was made by the Bloomberg administration that this was necessary to keep to keep homicides low. But prior to the pandemic, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the partly because of a change in administration and partly because of a lawsuit, the the incidence of stop, stop and frisk had fallen to about ten thousand a year. It was negligible. It had gone yeah. down to almost zero. Uh, but crime it, didn't go up. Not at all. It kept going down. It kept going down until the pandemic. Now it has gone up quite substantially, uh, at least with yeah. regard to shootings and killings. But, but uh, you know, they, they moved. My interpretation is that they moved from a reasonable suspicion standard for stops to a probable cause standard. So they stopped only the, you know, the people when there was a high likelihood of recovering something. Yeah. And, and they managed to do their jobs just as well. So I think both stories are important. I do agree with you. I do agree with you that, uh, you know, anti-police rhetoric is part of the story. I, I, I will not dispute that. But I, I also think that police practices can be changed. And, and I think the example I would point to is Camden, actually. I think this is why, you know, the police reform, uh, um, if you look at actually the data, um, you know, the one, uh, uh, the one good thing about having 16,000 police departments in the United States is you could learn from, you know, successes. Um, and from failures. But Camden, as you know, uh, you know, disbanded the police department around 2012 for budgetary reasons, and they replaced it with a county force. And there was a real change in selection training um, and so on. Um, you know, the, the entire original police force was part of them were rehired, they had to reapply. And, and they built a police force that, you know, did more foot patrols. They went and introduced themselves to people in the neighborhoods. You did have an increase in witness cooperation, interest, uh, increase in uh, case closures. And um, uh, and at the end of the day, the Camden County Police Force was actually larger than the original. So it doesn't fit the defunding narrative, but it certainly does fit the narrative that changes in police practices can help you close cases. Um, and uh, and I'll just mention one last thing. I, I I'm speaking too much. I feel, but I want no. to point. I want to I want to point to your listeners' uh, conversation you had recently. I listened to all your podcasts, as you know, uh, with um, uh, Robert Woodson. Uh, yeah, and, and Sylvia uh, Bennett-Stone. Sylvia Bennett-Stone. Now, there's a claim made there that I, you know, I have discussed yeah. with you privately about exploring empirically. Yeah. That Sylvia Bennett-Stone's interventions in communities, there's a claim made that I would like to, you know, examine and explore and I think is plausible, has managed to increase witness cooperation. If she has managed to increase witness cooperation, that's something very, very significant to me. So that's, that's, that's going to be part of the solution. And the way in which she, you know, said that she had done it is just by making people aware that there's a, there's a big difference between, you know, snitching to get yourself a lighter sentence and, 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 and snitching to, to, you know, facilitate public safety in your neighborhood um, and so on, various interventions. Uh, I just want to clarify, this is Voices of Black Mothers United. That's an initiative at the Woodson Center that Sylvia Bennett Stone, who lost her daughter to a homicide, uh, a drive-by uh, stray bullet and hit her daughter while parked in a filling station and killed her and has devoted her life to helping other mothers who have experienced similar losses to cope with their loss and, and the aftermath of it. And they do claim that in the communities where they're working, they're going to crime scenes, yeah. their, their affiliates and counseling families and comforting them and whatnot has uh, had the effect of increasing case clearance rates and witness cooperation. And one would like to have the, you know, the, the detailed data on that, that was just a kind of qualitative report from them. Uh, and we, we, we will see if it survives close scrutiny. But yeah, that, that's what 
That's what yeah, I mean, if that about. is true, if that is true, that means, you know, people will be killed with impunity less often. They have less incentive to take preemptive action. You ought to have a serious impact on homicide rates. And, uh, you know, that would be my prediction if, if her intervention is successful. And, and that's, that would be very significant in my opinion. Okay, well, um, I'm going to call us to a, a close here. Okay. Uh, after 80 minutes of conversation, it's a good uh, session. We can talk again. Thanks to Rajiv Seti of Columbia Barnard College, my dear friend. And uh, this is the Glenn Show signing off. Thank you, Glenn.